Our Old Testament reading comes from Jeremiah 29. God speaks uh, these words to his people. As exile comes upon them, as they are separated from these blessings that God has given to them, and he, he gives to his people through the prophet Jeremiah uh, the way back. And so we read these verses together with uh, our sermon text from Matthew. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 10 through verse 14. This is God's holy word, inerrant and infallible. He gives it to his people for our good. Let's give our attention as it's read in the presence of his people. Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Amen. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. And go then to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7 can be found on page 965 if you're using the Pew Bible. Matthew 7. beginning in verse 6. Once again, God's holy word, Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray once more. So, Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Beloved people of Jesus Christ, let's consider these things together. Before the United States entered uh, the Second World War, uh, the American president, the American government, that was uh, President Roosevelt at the time, FDR, was doing much 
to, to give assistance to the British. Uh, there were uh, resources and material given in order to prepare them as they really began something like a, a singular stand against one of the most vicious tyrants uh, the world had, had ever seen, seeking to give rise to what he was calling the, the Third Reich. And uh, when material ran low, then uh, President FDR and the American government resupplied the British. And it, it became such an ongoing thing that uh, about the time of Pearl Harbor, the American mil military inventory was noticeably low. They had really supplied uh, the British with, with, with many things. They helped prepare them. They gave them an ongoing supply. But there was something still missing, something that Churchill wanted desperately. And what he wanted was the presence of the United States. He wanted them fighting alongside with him. And so even though Pearl Harbor was a great tragedy and a great shock to all Americans and to many people around the world, there was a, a, quite a, a definite silver lining for Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of, of Britain at that time. He, he writes later on, reflecting back, that very night, he said, I knew the U.S. was in the fight, up to the neck and to the death. I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. There's a lesson there uh, for us as we consider the presence of God with us and how we sleep at night. Why can we sleep? Because we are counted among the, the saved and the thankful. But God gives those three things to us in the gospel of grace, in the kingdom of Christ. What does he give? He gives us preparation so that we may be ready to face all the things that this life and the sin-cursed world brings our way. He gives us ongoing supply, sustenance of grace that he promises to give to us as your days, your strength shall be. But then also, blessed, in a blessed way and in a marvelous way, he gives us his divine presence. And those three things are especially known and given to us through the medium of persistent, genuine prayer. And so we consider these things together as Jesus calls us to ask and seek and knock. And why would we be counted among those who would be, who would be prayerful? Really, it comes down to reliance and, and trust and an awareness of our need, that we need his help that he gives, his, his preparedness and supply and his divine presence. And we feel, we have an acute awareness of our need, the more that we pay attention to the words of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives to us, the life of the kingdom that he places before us, if we really consider it, what we come away feeling is an acute awareness of our need. And that's where we begin with verse 6 today, as we close something of that section where Jesus gives a converse instruction from verses 1 through 5. What has Jesus said in verses 1 through 5? He, he has said, do not judge. Do not be overly judgmental. Really, do not ascend into the judgment seat of God, that which is left alone to him. But as those who are called to love our enemies, as those who are called to not presume to yourself, to ascend into the judgment seat of God, there, there's a, a danger that uh, we need to be aware of. And that danger would be, well then, uh, we exercise no judgment or discernment in any area of our lives and in our dealings with people and in the way that we seek to bring the 
the life of the kingdom of Christ, the message of the kingdom of Christ, that we sort of do that without any discernment at all. And we need to be aware that that is um, a danger for us. The Jesus words in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 1 through 5 does not mean that we cannot exercise good discernment when it comes to our dealings with people. And so, essentially, the purpose of verse 6 is to address what we would be in danger in if we felt like we could never exercise any sort of judgment. But we need to know, what does Jesus mean when he says, holy, do not give dogs what is holy, and who are these dogs and pigs that Jesus talks about? Well, very clearly, what is holy in uh, the Gospel of Matthew is the saving message of the kingdom of Christ. It's the life of the kingdom of Christ. That is what is holy. In other words, Jesus says that there will be some people who show by the evidence of their actions that they ought to be disqualified from the open presentation of the truth that they would receive from the members of Jesus' kingdom. This is what dogs and, and, and swine are. This could have been used as a derogatory term in Jesus' day, perhaps for Gentiles, but what Jesus uses it to refer to is those who openly have vicious scorn and hardened contempt for the kingdom of Christ. There are some people who have scorn and contempt for the life of Christ's kingdom. The, the, the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, rejoice when you are persecuted, blessed are the meek, the kind of life that Jesus puts in front of us. There are many people who are filled with great scorn and to mock the kinds of things that Jesus calls us to. True followers of Jesus, when they hear the words of the Sermon on the Mount, and really the high bar that Jesus, the, the, the life that Jesus is calling us to, even though we know that we will never perfectly attain to that life, the life that Jesus calls us to, we'll, we'll never perfectly fulfill it, even though we know that it gives us great joy to hear those words. Because we know that it is the life that Jesus has lived for us. A life of meekness, gentleness, of righteousness, of long-suffering and patience. And so for true followers of Christ, when we hear the life of the kingdom or when it's set before us, we know we will never perfectly live that way, but we will diligently strive towards it and pursue it. But there are also those who scoff at and mock the gospel of grace, the, the very saving message of the kingdom itself. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Why? Because if you don't, you are deadlocked in your sin and misery. The book of Acts, in many ways, chronicles how this was quite the experience for Paul as he interacted with Jewish people, giving them the gospel of grace, going from town to town and setting before them that Jesus was indeed the Savior. So we read in Acts 18, verses 5 and 6, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So those who are filled with open contempt for the message of the kingdom and the life of the kingdom, these are the ones that Jesus is, is talking about. Notice how in the illustration that Jesus gives, dogs and swine, dogs and pigs, do the exact opposite of what a true believer would do. A true believer sells all that he has for the sake of the kingdom. 
he finds the pearl of great price, Matthew chapter 13, and from his joy goes and sells all that he has for that pearl. He or she gladly lays it down because they have seen the value, the unsurpassing value of the kingdom of Christ. It becomes the great joy of the followers of Christ to give everything, to lay everything down for the sake of the kingdom. Interesting that pearls are used here in in this illustration by by Jesus. A pig is occupied with what? Eating. They, They want the slop that they are fed. And though it would be rather disgusting for many of us to look on that and see what they are doing, they find great joy in it. To them, they have just received the the, the greatest thing they could receive. And if you were to throw pearls into a pig pen, what would they do? They would disregard it. Why? Because it's not slop. It's not food, right? And so uh, they have this skewed vision of what is truly valuable. Jesus says that is like those who are filled with scorn for the kingdom. They spend their time seeking things that are of greatly lesser value, and they miss the value of the kingdom. They trample it underfoot. A true believer turns towards their neighbor in love and in graciousness and all the the fruits of the Spirit. What do dogs do? They turn back and they attack the one who has set the kingdom before them. And so we are called to exercise discernment of, of, uh, as the people of God, to, to understand and to know that there will be people who are filled with scorn and contempt Uh, for the life that Christ calls us to, the saving message of the gospel, and in many of our dealings uh, with people. We need wisdom and discernment for these things. Proverbs 9 says this, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. See, the person is is seeking to help the person who, the other who is in need, and that person who is reproved or corrected, turns and attacks the one who brought that help. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Titus chapter 3 says this, New Testament commandment, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So Jesus gives us this instruction so that we are not so taken with verses 1 through 5 that we think we can't exercise any kind of discernment in our dealings with people. So what does that uh, leave us? As those living in the kingdom, we need wisdom, discernment. We're called to wholehearted trust in our Father, to not be filled with anxiety because He gives us the things that we need. We're called to be filled with heavenly mindedness. uh, Let your treasure be in heaven and not on things that are on the earth. We're called to selflessness, to deep devotion from the heart. Don't perform your acts of religiosity out of self-seeking or vain glory, but do it because the Father who is in heaven sees you and you are doing all that you are doing in order to serve Him. In many ways, verse 6 closes that section, speaking of all those things back through chapter 6. And where does it leave you? Well, if you rightly consider all of those words, the life that Christ calls us to as his followers, you will be left humbly recognizing your own inadequacy. 
and the life of Jesus seems so out of reach for those who humbly recognize their inadequacy. And yet, it is that very humility that is the only possible starting point for those who are members of Jesus' kingdom. How does the Sermon on the Mount begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to those who begin by recognizing their spiritual bank- bankruptcy and inadequacy without the help of the grace of the Savior. So the heart that is humbled will be glad to find the promise contained within the instruction of verses 7 through 11 of ask and seek and knock. For the one who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it shall be opened to them. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, I cannot imagine a better, more cheering, or more comforting statement with which to face all the uncertainties and hazards of our life in this world than that contained in verses 7 through 11. It really sets the tone for understanding this passage because this passage can be so misunderstood. And people thinking that it means whatever you think you want in your mind, if you persistently go to God in prayer, he is then compelled to give it to you. And that has nothing to do with this passage. We're set on an understanding of this passage by recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy and our need for grace and strength in order to live the life of the kingdom. And so we move then to consider our need for persistent prayer, which is uh, the main idea of our passage before us. Jesus tells us to ask and to seek and to knock. Now, there's a, there's a repetition there. There's three words, and then they are repeated in verse 7 as well. And so that gives us an overarching, or verse 8, and so that gives us an overarching picture of persistence. This is what the Heavenly Father wants from His children. He wants us to be persistent, even though He already knows what we need. It's just the way that our Heavenly Father is. He wants us to come to Him and to ask. Of course, He knows what we need. He knows what we need better than we do. This picture of persistence and this idea of asking and seeking and knocking is also addressed in Luke chapter 11, and that's a helpful passage for us to read because Jesus tells us the good things that God gives to us there. And so after His teaching in Luke on the Lord's Prayer, He gives them uh, this to say. He said to them, Which one of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of this man's boldness, his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? To those who ask him. It is the Holy Spirit that is the ultimate good gift that God gives to us, the ultimate good blessing that God gives to us, and we'll, we'll consider that in a few minutes. But first, persistence. Ask and seek and knock. Be persistent. Be diligent. 
in going to our Heavenly Father who gives to us from his storehouse of blessing. We hate to regard ourselves as in desperate need. Lloyd-Jones says there is there's a, a joy in hearing the proclamation of Christ. People enjoy hearing that, generally speaking, but they generally do not like hearing what Christ had to do to go to the cross to die for their sins because they could not have saved themselves otherwise. Why does liberal theology in regards to the life of Jesus tend to gain such a foothold in the church? Because what it does is it sets before the hearers saying, here is the path that Jesus showed to the rest of humanity. And now it is left to us to go and follow that path, to do what Jesus has set us out to do, what he showed us we must do as the human race. Now, of course, Jesus is an example. He is a uh, our chief example, but he is not ex- an example to us until he is our mediator, until he is our righteousness, until he is our life. The proclamation of Christ needs to be out of an awareness of our need. We need a Savior, and we need him desperately. So we are persistent. Why? Because we have an ongoing awareness of our need, not only to be reconciled to God at the start, but also to be supplied with all that he gives to us. So when Jesus says ask, he's simply saying pray. Matthew 6, verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Prayer is what? Bringing our petitions before the Lord, coming to him and acknowledging uh, to him what we need. We read elsewhere in scripture, pray without ceasing. Why? Because if we are convinced of its effectiveness, we will never give up on praying. If you knew someone who always, repeatedly, regularly was exercising themselves in prayer, was going to prayer repeatedly, and you knew that about them, and you knew that they not only prayed in secret, but they prayed with those who were close to them, that they had great joy in prayer, would you say of that person, there's someone who thinks that they're doing it on their own? There's someone who believes they can do it out of their own strength. No, of course not, because the posture of prayer in itself shows reliance and it shows a recognition of need. So Jesus says, ask. In other words, pray. Pray without ceasing. Jesus calls us to seek. To seek is to do so genuinely. It's a a genuine pursuit. We play uh, hide-and-go-seek at our house, and sometimes I do this, I'm rather ashamed to admit, but sometimes I'll, when I feel like there's a lot to do at the house, need to do something in the kitchen or in my office, I send my kids off to find hiding places, and then for the next two or three minutes, I go to work at the thing that I think really needs to be done. Now, there's a song that I sing when we're playing hide-and-seek, and what do the young children like? They like to hear the the pattering of the feet coming into the room and looking around and singing the song. If they're not hearing the song and they're not hearing dad's feet going from room to room so that they can giggle, is he going to find us, is he not? They might make their way back out to the kitchen or the office or whatever I am. And if they find me doing something else, what will they rightly accuse me of? Daddy, you're not playing the game. You're not genuinely playing because you are not seeking me. You're missing a key part. It's called hide and seek, right? Little children know this. So to seek is to do so genuinely. You will seek me 
and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Is your heart genuine and sincere in your pursuit of God? You cannot fake it with God. And that's one of the things that is repeatedly set before us in the Sermon on the Mount. He looks upon the heart, and he knows the heart. And though you may be very skilled in setting the people around you onto a misconception of what is actually true, you cannot fool God because he knows the genuineness of the heart. See, in Jeremiah 29, what God was calling uh, his people to was to see that their highest blessedness was God. The way back was to see him as their greatest reward. Yes, they were going to have the promised land taken away from them when they were going into exile. But what was the way back? To seek the Lord. Not to seek the land first. Not to seek the end of the exile first. Seek the Lord. Psalm 16, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. In your presence there is fullness of joy. To seek is to do so genuinely. To knock is to have diligent pursuit of God's way. Matthew Henry says this, Knock as he that desires to enter into the house knocks at the door. We would be admitted to converse with God. We would be taken into his love and his favor and his kingdom. Sin has shut the door and barred it against us. And so by prayer we knock. It's to say, I know that this God has what I need. So my diligence is focused upon him. We're moving into the season where we have much colder air outside. And so perhaps you're going to someone else's house and it's very cold, it's unpleasant, and you're wanting to have that warm air wash over you. So what do you do? You go and you knock at that door because you know they're expecting you. You don't, you don't go to the house next door. That would create an awkward exchange. It's this house. The God of Scripture has the blessedness that you need, so seek it in Him. The conclusion of this instruction by Jesus, ask and seek and knock, is that genuine, persistent, reliant prayer will yield eternal, priceless, inestimable blessings for the one who practices it because He gives us that promise. For the one who asks, receives. Don't miss it. It's a promise. For the one who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. So what should you do? Back to Matthew Henry. He says this, pray often. Pray with sincerity and seriousness. Pray and pray again. Make conscience of prayer. Be constant in it. Make a business of prayer and be earnest in it. The promise of Jesus, of course, does not mean that prayer, even true prayer, automatically gives us the blessings that we seek in the desired amount, right? Otherwise, persistence would be of no need. He wouldn't need to tell us to be diligent and to be persistent and to come to him in an ongoing way. But God promises to give us what we need in an ongoing way. You see, true prayer is not magic. And the blessings that he gives are not automatic. But here's the key. Here's what you absolutely have to understand about this promise of Christ. It's that we get the help and the grace and the blessings that we would not receive had we not come to him in genuine prayer. That's what you need to understand about the promise. He gives us grace and blessings 
and blessedness that we would not receive had we not come to him in prayer. One pastor puts it this way, one may be a truly industrious man and yet poor, as poor in earthly things. There's talented people out there that uh, don't have great success in life, right? But he says this, and this is, the, this is the heart of the promise. One cannot be a truly praying man and yet poor in spiritual things. That's the promise. You cannot be a truly praying man or woman and truly poor, desolate, bankrupt in spiritual things. It may not be in the amount that you want. It may not be at the exact time you want. But he promises to give and to bless and to prepare and to supply and to hold close. So we consider those things then as we close. Prepared, supplied, held close. Back to Luke 11. What, what is it that is, is good, right? The, the Heavenly Father knows how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If earthly fathers do this, and the goodness of earthly fathers is at best partial, then how much more is the Heavenly Father who is truly good and ultimately good and perfectly good, how much more will He know how to give good things to those who ask? And of course, it is in Luke 11, the Holy Spirit, which shows us the way we are to understand this promise and the instruction on prayer. What are the kinds of things that God wants us to ask for in prayer? It doesn't mean that we cannot ask for earthly and temporal needs, for God to supply our needs, for God to be with those who are sick, for God to be with those who are in need of healing. Of course those things are legitimate. But also what he gives to us and what is he has promised to give us are the spiritual blessings to allow us to live in a way which glorifies him while we are here on the earth. So what is it that the Holy Spirit gives? Well, what is the fruit of the Spirit? All the fruits of the Spirit are, are virtues and graces that He gives to us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The ability to live a life that is glorifying to God. So He prepares us. You go to Him in genuine, persistent prayer. The Holy Spirit will prepare you for the life that is ahead of you. And you need to be prepared. Because I've seen it, there are two distinct ways that you will go when something unexpected comes into your life. When something you did not want and you do not enjoy is brought into your life out of the sovereignty of God, there are two distinct paths. And the two paths that you will go on, whichever one you will go on, will be determined by how you answer these three questions. Is God in control? Is God good? And does he love you? Is God in control? Is he good? And does he love you? If you answer yes to those three questions, that will set you on a vastly different path to how you respond to what has brought your way than if you answer no to those three things. You're able to answer yes as the Spirit gives you the virtue to prepare you for the many things in this life, the realities of this life that often come our way. The Holy Spirit gives us virtue to prepare us. Holy Spirit also, through genuine, persistent prayer, gives us grace to sustain us. 
as your days, your strength shall be. It's not just that beforehand you are supplied and then you're sort of set free. You let loose, kind of go and live life now. You're ready. No. We can never do it alone. We need day by day God's grace to sustain us. And that helps keep us reliant. And it also helps us see and know the strength of God. Because it's not just, he's not just a a good coach who can sort of form in us that which we need in order to go out and play the game. But he is so powerful and so sovereign over each and every circumstance that he's able to supply you with what you need as you are going through it. So listen here to the words of Charles Spurgeon. Speaking of the promise, as your days, your strength shall be, which is really what, uh, very closely connected to what we're considering. He says this, The same God who guides the stars in their courses, who directs the earth in its orbit, who feeds the burning furnace of the sun and keeps the stars perpetually burning with their fires, the same God has promised to supply your strength. While he is able to do all these things, Think not that he shall be unable to fulfill his own promise. Remember what he did in days of old, in the former generations. Remember how he spoke and it was done, how he commanded and it stood fast. Has not the Lord done it? And is his arm shortened that he cannot save, or his ear heavy that he cannot hear? O thou who art my God and strength, I believe that this promise shall be fulfilled. For the boundless reservoir of thy grace can never be exhausted, and the unlimitable storehouse of thy strength can never be emptied or rifled by the enemy. It is then a guaranteed promise. We believe that he is strong enough to give us grace to sustain us in the midst of the battle. And then finally, he gives his presence to comfort us, his presence to comfort us Sometimes what we need most when perhaps the bottom falls out, what we need most is his divine presence, the promises of Scripture. What did Churchill want and need? He had been supplied, or he had been prepared. He was being supplied. He wanted the United States next to him in the battle, fighting the fight, for he knew that that would change the course of the war itself and and history itself. And sometimes what we need most is the divine presence of God. And his word says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We read in Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The God of the armies is with us. Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus says in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's promised to be with us. To be more than a great coach that prepares us. More than a powerful one who can supply us in the midst of everything. But a loving father. A wonderful savior. The man of sorrows who identifies with us in our sorrow, in our trials, in our misery. The trials and the realities of his life, he never leaves us, nor forsakes us. And so what do we conclude? That through genuine, persistent prayer, 
God will give us everything good and needful to bring us to the day of salvation and to glorify himself through us. If it were all up to us, we would give ourselves everything wrong at all the wrong moments, but God is perfectly wise and knows all that he needs to give us in order to glorify himself through us. John Newton says that he often does the things that he does to correct our pride and our vanity, to exercise and strengthen our faith, to wean us from the world, to teach us a closer dependence upon himself, and to awaken our desires for a better inheritance. Of course, we don't enjoy many of the things that we experience in this world, but God is always working. He has prepared us, he supplies us, and he holds us close with his presence. You see, what truly matters is what we believe about God. Jesus appeals to that very thing. Is your heavenly Father good? Do you believe that he is good? If you believe that he is good, then he will give you what is good. How do you know that he is your heavenly Father and that he is good? You know that through the gospel of grace. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's already given us the best gift, Jesus Christ, the Savior, the mediator who has brought us out of our sin and misery and into salvation, and we stand in grace. We stand before the Father. We have a hope that goes beyond the grave that is imperishable and undefiled and kept in heaven for you. He's already given you the greatest blessedness. So how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? If you believe the gospel, then you believe that God is a good heavenly Father. And if you believe that he is a good heavenly Father, then you believe he will give you all that you need to bring you to the day of salvation and to glorify himself through you. The Father who gave the Son is our Father by grace. So do we believe it? He is our Heavenly Father. He does all things well. He makes no mistakes. He ever loves us. He's in control, and he is good. He has promised all virtue to prepare you, all grace to sustain you, and his divine presence to comfort you. So go to him in genuine, reliant, persistent prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises and these words challenge us and yet also comfort us. We pray that through your spirits they will take root in our hearts and lives and that you would be honored and glorified through the lives that we live in light of these. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John Newton wrote, 